Welcome to another episode of ABC Gotham. My name is Kate, and with me, as always, is the lovely Kathleen. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode K. This is a good one. Yeah, you're going to want to stick through, stick around for this one. It's a little creepy, so maybe turn off the lights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, today, we are doing killers, and there have been a lot of killers in New York. Sad but true. So we narrowed it down to four. One you will probably know very well. I can guarantee there's one at least you haven't heard of. And that's what we're here for, to educate you. Yeah, so let's just get started. Not all of these killers are what we'd call serial killers, but Mm -hmm. I think we should go into the definition of what serial versus mass murderer is, Kathleen. Right, because those those take up a lot of our mental space, and they get in the news, and You want to know the difference between a serial killer and a mass murderer. So, there will be a quiz later for each of our murderers who have killed more than one. We will be asking you, is that a serial killer or a mass murderer? So pay attention. A serial killer commits many murders over a long period of time. A mass murderer commits many murders all at once. Also, the numbers matter. So, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, Mass murder is a single event at one location involving the murder of four or more people. So if you only kill three people or less than that, you're just homicidal. Terrorism, government-sanctioned murder, those are considered mass murder. Serial killers, on the other hand, kill in a series of events. See? See? Killers usually don't know the victims, and the opposite is actually true with mass murderers. And serial killers almost always have a cooling-off period in between murders In a lot of cases, they derive sexual excitement from the killings. And to qualify as a serial killer, one needs three victims or more. So keep those in mind as we tell you about these famous and not-so-famous killers in New York City history. So we have discussed some killers on the show before. One of our notable ones, Harry K. Thaw. Oh, yeah. Technically a killer. So Technically, he shot him in the face. What do you need? He is a killer. (laughs) So, our first is along the lines of the Harry K. Thaw, Evelyn Nesbitt. And this reminds me a lot of the Evelyn Nesbitt case. Mm. There's a pretty young chorus girl Uh wrapped up in all of this. There are affairs. Get ready, guys. This is another crime of the century. But with (laughs) with a twist. So, Nan Patterson, pretty young chorus girl. This is 1902. She runs away from home when she's 16. And Mary's a Baltimore clerk. I actually couldn't find her husband's name. Wow. He's just Nan Patterson's husband. So she, at 16, marries this clerk in Baltimore, throws him over to move to New York City, doesn't get a divorce yet. Hmm. And then at 17, meets Caesar Young, who is also married to a woman named Margaret. Her name's more important, I guess. Okay. (laughs) Uh, They meet on a national tour, and Nan quits the stage to become his, like, official mistress. Oh, it's a showman. Yeah. When you meet your lover. It does not go well. He convinces Nan to get divorced, and Caesar Young then goes to his wife and tries to get a divorce, but his wife won't give him a divorce. Uh Uh-oh. This is where it starts to go bad. You know what you gotta do with ladies like that. Ah, this is not going to go the way you think it will. So when he gets back to New York, his wife had booked a cruise for them to go to Europe. Nice. Without, of course, the influence of young Nan Patterson. Well, sure. And she did it as a surprise. Like as a, we need to get away. We need to fix our relationship. This is a good way to do it. 
By the time Caesar Young gets back to New York anyway, he's a little tired of Nanny. She's younger than him, and he just goes to her and he's like, this is done. We're done. I think he has a bit of guilt. He's got a wife. You know what you gotta do with men like that. Well, you'll find out. <laughs> so he breaks it off with Nan, and her friends warn him, you better watch out. You don't know what Nan is capable of. He, of course, ignores it, breaks it off. He and his wife are set to leave from New York City on June 4th. So he sends his wife to the boat and goes to say, like, this final goodbye to Nan. Uh Like, this is it. When I come back, don't call me. Don't write. Nan's side of the story is that Caesar Young gave her $200 to meet him in London. And she told him, no, we're done. We're through. So Nan's got her own spin on this. Mm -hmm. He picks up Nan in a handsome cab, and they are going to the boat. They're riding together in the boat. That's where he's breaking up with her. It's it's a little weird. Mm-hmm. The cabbie hears a gunshot. Oh. And sees Young in Patterson's lap. And he's dead with a gunshot wound. I'll tell you about in a moment. Mm. The gun is in his pocket. And Nan Patterson is saying, Oh, Caesar, why did you do it? Why did you shoot yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Nan. So she says he shot himself because mm. she wouldn't run away to London to meet him there. Oh, okay. However, the gun is in his pocket, and he is shot <laughs> on the left side below his shoulder. Okay. And he's right-handed. And, so he's, the, and he's dead. He's totally dead. Okay, we're not he's getting his point of view on this. Totally okay. dead. This okay. is why you will never hear this <laughs> really story. Happened. Mm. So, if, if, while you're listening, if you can wrap your right hand around your left side under your shoulder blade and imagine shooting yourself there, that's what she's essentially saying he did. The coroner says there's oh, absolutely boy. no way Man. he shot himself. Man. This is where the family gets involved. Nan's sister and brother-in-law bought this gun at a pawn shop the day before, and then they go on the lam. Which I really want to mm. say that people go on the lam more often. We need to work that in. Yeah. I think so. Every time I go on vacation, I'm going to say I'm going on the lam. <laughs> Where's Kate? She's on the lam. So the sister and brother-in-law disappear. Mm. Nan, of course, goes to trial. Sure. But being so beautiful and young. Of course. It's the Evelyn Nesbitt thing. Uh, in Evelyn's defense, she did not. She didn't kill no, anyone. Anyone. No. But it sounds very like, you know, young chorus girl. I could see up. how this could get a lot of attention, definitely. Yeah. She also is treated for hysteria around the time. And she's, like I said, she's young and beautiful. She wins over the public. There's a bridge of size between the jail and the courthouse. You can hear the people in the streets. They're all free, Nan. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to get a good jury. Mm mm. So she she tests, somehow brings herself to testify and convinces them that she was ending the affair. She knew right from wrong, and she knew it was wrong to hit this affair. Mm-hmm. And the jurors are split, 6-6. Six, six. Wow. So it's a mistrial. That's all you need. So her sister and brother-in-law, uh, their last name is Smith, mm. the Smiths were found in Cincinnati and brought back for a second trial. Mm-hmm. And they plead the fifth. The pawn shop owner is sympathetic to poor Nan, Nan's case. Sure. And he won't name who bought the the gun. But they knew that it was 
the sister and brother. Oh, they mom. totally know okay. it. <laughs> and they totally know that, that she totally did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, second mistrial. Ugh. So the prosecutors blame the press. The prosecutor concluded that no jury would unanimously believe such a sweet young thing could oh. commit such a brutal crime. So heinous. A producer tries... So the rest of Nan's life is a little bit of a downhill mm-hmm. from there. Because, you know, at 17... She's famous. She's famous. Mm-hmm. Which then a producer tries to send her out on tour. Which this sounds like ragtime got Nan Patterson and Evelyn Nesbitt like mixed up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. A producer decides to send her out on tour. She doesn't do well west mm. of the Hudson. <laughs> west of the Hudson? West of the Hudson. Not west of the Mississippi. West, no, of, west the of the Hudson. Wow. Okay. Right. The show folds. <laughs> this is the best part. She remarries her first husband. Oh. And what's they his move. Name? Yeah, what's his name? <laughs> Mr. Patterson. <laughs> Mr. Nan Patterson. Right. And they move to Pittsburgh and. She gets in a little bit of trouble for extramarital affairs, and she kind of calms down in her old age. By that, I mean, like, her 20s. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, yeah. Wow. So that is our first killer for today. It's a little lighthearted. I feel like I should have saved this for later. No, no, this this is... It's a good one to, to start with. It shows the travesty of justice that we had to deal with. I love how the press can totally just warp this whole... Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. It's, in, it's insane. It's really ridiculous. Wow. Nan. All right. So then our question, whether Nan is a mass murder serial killer, is not actually relevant as she has a body count of one. That we know of. That we know of. All right. Well, this next person has quite a few more. He is actually... Probably the record holder for most killed in New York City, in the greater New York City area. This is Richard Leonard Kuklinski. He is a hitman for the mafia. Oh, that's so scary. Uh Uh-huh. If you've seen our feed, you probably already know we're going to do Son of Sam in this episode. Mm -hmm. But, which is is really scary, especially when you get into the details. But something about a mob hit, like... That's pretty that's pretty scary. It's it's cold and there is a 1992 HBO documentary entitled Iceman: Confessions of a Hitman. He definitely killed 6, possibly over 100. Whoa. His own personal estimate is probably closer to 200, but there are not records obviously of he's such modest. things. He's, he's modest. He's a modest guy, you know. And his killings happened between 1949 and 1986. Born in Jersey City, New Jersey. He had a bad childhood. I'm not letting him off the hook. I'm just saying it sucked to be a kid in the Kuklinski house. Both parents were abusive and his father was also alcoholic. His father actually beat his older brother Florian to death when Kuklinski was five years old. I'm sure he saw it happen too. And the father then told his wife to call 911 and say the boy hit his head falling down the stairs. Kuklinski killed his first victim at age 13. His victim was a kid named Charlie Lane. He led a gang that bullied and beat up Kuklinski. Kuklinski beat Lane with a heavy wooden dowel until he was dead. Mm. This is his first kill. Listen to what he did next. Removed his teeth and cut off his fingertips to prevent identification before dumping the body off the bridge in South Jersey. And the body has never been found. So all this information comes straight from Kuklinski and all these interviews he did in the documentary. Then Kuklinski found a metal pole and went after all the other boys in the gang. He beat them all nearly to death. Jeez, how, remind us how old he is again? He was 13 years old wow. at this time. Yeah. Kuklinski killed his second person years later. He's a grown man by now. 
by incinerating a man in his car after an altercation in a bar. He found the man sleeping off his drink in his car later that night. Kuklinski emptied a can of gasoline into the car and lit it on fire. Well, first I just want to say some of these turn of phrases are great. I really think sleeping off the drink (laughs) should be in our uh, lexicon. We should bring that up more, too. Yeah. But what? (laughs) Yeah. And by this time, Kuklinski is 6'5", 300 pounds, and in other more subtle ways, uniquely suited to being a hitman. He followed orders. He did not ask questions. So how his career started is he approached Mafia Capo Roy DeMeo, and he said he was up for hire. He would kill on contract. DeMeo was intrigued, and he wanted Kuklinski to prove that he could be a good hitman. So DeMeo took him out in his car, and they drove to an inner city area. DeMeo told Kuklinski, get out of the car, go over there, and shoot that guy. He points to a guy, that guy walking his dog. Kuklinski did not question who that person was or what the guy had done. He got out of the car, walked past the man, turned, shot him in the back of the head. Killed him instantly. This cemented his association with DeMeo, and DeMeo introduced him to the Gambino crime family. I just want to say, he just walks up, he's like, hey, I'm a sociopath. Do you have work for me? (laughs) Kuklinski didn't just hire himself to the Gambinos. He wasn't like the Gambino guy. He actually worked freelance. Available for hire to anyone who could afford him. Generally, he worked for the Gambino crime family, but he worked alone. He made his own plans. He decided when and where to make the hit, the best way for it to be done. His methods. Kuklinski killed people by gun, knife, strangulation, crossbow, a hammer to the skull, and poisoning. So you're saying he's a jack of all trades. Indeed. A freelance Jack of all trades. He liked cyanide a lot. That was his favorite. It works really fast, and it doesn't show up in toxicology reports. He actually had this trick where he would put it in, like, a nasal spray bottle, and he would sneak up and spray it in the victim's face. That'll just absorb through your skin, and it'll kill you. The exact numbers of how many kills he has have never been established. His self-report is between 33 and 100. So then he earned the nickname The Iceman for two reasons, from what I can tell. One... His complete and utter lack of remorse for his victims, like, to the extent that it frightened the mafia guys. They're like, yeah, you know, we hire this guy, but let's not bring... That's why he's a freelancer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he's nobody wants prolific. to hire that jerk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is he dead right now? He is dead right Okay. Now. Yes. Because I was like, what if he's listening to our podcast and he hears me call him a jerk? <laughs> you got a problem. <laughs> In addition to his cold lack of remorse, he was reportedly the first to keep bodies in a freezer to halt their decomposition. And then when authorities did find the bodies, it was harder to accurately pinpoint the time of death. And this worked really well until one body was found and part of the heart was still frozen. Hadn't thawed all the way. Oh. This tipped off investigators to the trick he was doing. And this led them to call into question, all these other unsolved murders and their times of death, because he effectively disguised the time of death. He later stated that he got the freezing idea from a fellow hitman, a guy named Robert Prange, who actually sounds completely and utterly terrifying. What I read about him, I was like, I don't want this in my head. You can look it up yourself if you want, Robert P-R-O-N-G-E. He was a military-trained demolitions expert turned hitman. His nickname 
Kuklinski gets to be the Iceman. Robert Prange is Mr. Softy. Oh, no, that's so disturbing. Well, he drove a Mr. Softy ice cream thing. Yeah, that's still disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> it is thought that maybe Prange knew too much about Kuklinski, and at some point he may have made threats towards him, and therefore Kuklinski had enough reason to kill Prange, and in 1984 he was targeted for the hit and found slumped over in his ice cream van multiple gunshot wounds to the head. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. We got sort of a Jekyll and Hyde thing going with Kuklinski. At the same time that he was a career hitman, he admitted this, fully admitted this, he met and married Barbara Pedrici. Later, he fathered two daughters and a son. Wow. They had a home in suburban Dumont, New Jersey. One of the police is quoted as saying he never socialized, gambled, or messed around with other women. He lived for his wife and kids. One minute, he'd be repairing his daughter's toys. The next minute, he'd be dismembering a body with a chainsaw and stuffing it into an oil drum. That was one of his favorite ways to dispose of bodies. His family and neighbors were never aware of his activities. They just thought he was a successful businessman. He would get up and leave the house at any time of day or night to do a job. He would even leave in the middle of dinner. But otherwise, he was a businessman. Did his wife know? Nothing. That? She had no clue. Wow. Mm -hmm. Really? Isn't that weird? Wow. His fee for a hit was upwards of $20,000, including expenses. He never turned down a job. But as a small saving grace, he refused to kill women or children. Aww. What a nice guy. guy. Stand-up citizen, that one. <laughs> Apart from that, all of his assigned hits were carried out. He never let anyone get away. Ever. He said if, if he was on your trail, he would find you and get you. You were not safe. So, New Jersey cop Dominic Polifrone is credited with bringing Kuklinski to justice. It took 18 months to build up the case, and Polifrone had to go undercover and had wow. to convince Kuklinski that he was, quote, one of the bad guys. So they would meet up in parks and at service stations, highway service stations, and they spoke about various gruesome murders Kuklinski had committed, including a mafia hit in Detroit for which he received $65,000. There are also statement killings. One mob boss paid him extra to place a dead canary in a victim's mouth. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's a warning to others. Another time, Kuklinski joked to Polifrone how he watched one gang member eat an entire hamburger laced with cyanide before he dropped dead. According to the cop, quote, He told me cyanide normally works real quick and easy, but this guy had the constitution of goddamn ox and is just eating and eating. He ate almost the whole burger, and then, bam, he's down. Wow. Polifroni finally nailed Kuklinski after tricking Kuklinski into buying what he thought was pure cyanide. A team of feds and ATF, alcohol, tobacco, firearms officers, arrested him in December of 1986. He went to jail. Don't worry. They got him. He died at the age of 70. This was at, at 1.15 a.m. on March 5th. 2006. He was in a secure wing at the St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey at the time. But the timing of his death is suspicious. Hmm. He was scheduled to testify that former Gambino crime family underboss Sammy Gravano had ordered him to murder New York Police Department detective Peter Calabro. Kuklinski had admitted to murdering Calibro with a shotgun on the night of March 14, 1980. 
He denied knowing that Calibro was a police officer, but said he would have killed him anyway. At the time that Kuklinski was scheduled to testify, Gravano was already incarcerated for an unrelated charge. He was serving a 19-year prison sentence for running an ecstasy ring in Arizona. Kuklinski also stated to family members that he thought, quote, they were poisoning him. Dude, he should have known better. Better than what? Messing with the mob? Yeah. (laughs) What's he doing testifying against the people he worked for? He was already in prison. He really had nothing to lose. He was trying to get a better sentence. Maybe he got... No. Okay. This is one one person who was not getting back out on the street. He thought they were poisoning him. A few days after Kuklinski's death, prosecutors dropped all charges against Gravano. Because without Kuklinski's testimony, there was insufficient evidence to continue. So, again, there is that documentary, HBO documentary, The Iceman. I don't know if it's a good one or if it's lame, but it's actually him talking about his stuff. So if you're interested, check it out. And quiz time. Kuklinski, serial killer or mass murderer? I don't know. He's definitely got some sociopathic tendencies. Yes. I'm going to say mass murderer. Hmm, let's go back to the definition, because it's different in a series, you know? It's all different ones. Serial killers, many murders over a long period of time. Mass murders, many at once. I think we got a serial killer on our hands. You think so? Because he's not picking his victims. We're going to go into Son of Sam next, and he definitely, like, picked his victims. Yeah, yeah, and that that actually applies to the definition I have. The killers don't usually know their victims. The opposite is true with mass murderers. So he was killing who he was supposed to kill. I think we got a serial killer on All right. Hands. Well, under those, Son of Sam mm. didn't actually know the people he was killing. I see. But he did pick them. He picked them based on their appearance. Tell me about the Son of Sam. So Son of Sam, also known as the forty-four caliber killer, hmm. caused... I don't know if you guys know about this, but there, there's, of course, the movie Summer of Sam. It's which pretty good. Is, I recommend it. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Hmm. Recommended by ABC Gotham. Mm. We should get, like, some money for that, right? We really should. We should. I'll talk to Spike Lee. Yeah, let me know. I tried to talk to my dad because he was actually living here at the time this happened, but unfortunately, ABC got the mites. I couldn't get him. That sounded like an awful, awful time to be in New York, even without Son of Sam, at least in the movie. It just looked horrific. It's bad time The heat wave and the crack epidemic. Quote, unquote. (laughs) All right, so Son of Sam... Also known as David Richard Berkowitz, born Richard David Falco, June 1st, 1953, in right here in Brooklyn, New York, where we're recording this episode. Mm -hmm. His parents were separated before birth, and his mother gave him up for adoption. I'm going into all of this because it actually relates later. She gives him up for adoption. She she actually had a lover at the time, Mm. and so it's suspected, and she pretty much told him that the man she was having an affair with was actually his father. Mm -hmm. So they're getting divorced. Mother gives him up for adoption when her lover threatens to leave her. Lord, are you serious? So she gives him up. Now, it may may or may not have changed his life and what he became, but it's it's still... Once again, a bad childhood is not an excuse. No. It is just a a relevant factor to the story. Well, and it seems like he had a pretty good life. Like, he's adopted by the Berkowitzes. They're from the Bronx. Mm -hmm. They actually flip his first and middle names. That's why he's born Richard David, and then he becomes David Richard. They give him their last name. Mm -hmm. 
but pretty much from when he's young. His adoptive mother does die when he's pretty young, but he is a kind of a troubled childhood, typical antisocial sociopath mm-hmm. tendencies. He's extremely smart, but gets bored at school and kind of starts not doing so well mm-hmm. because he's so bored. Arson is also a problem with him. Mm-hmm. He starts a lot of fires, petty larceny, getting into trouble. So when he's 18 years old in 1971, he actually joins the army and goes to South Korea, spends four years in the army, gets an honorable discharge, comes back home. I kind of am like, "Eh, what happened while he was gone? Yeah. He, when he comes back, he actually tracks down and he finds out he's adopted. It's incredibly hard for him. He didn't know that whole time. No. He's very traumatized by the fact that he was adopted that Mm -hmm. his mother gave him away he meets his birth mother and he's really disturbed by his illegitimate birth like it Mm. really bothers him Mm -hmm. mostly because the man who had been his father had already died so there was Mm. no chance for him to meet him this apparently shatters his sense of identity and Mm. who he is and for somebody already on the brink this is just like one more thing yeah so he starts to work for the U.S. Postal Service as a letter sorter, and that's pretty much his job until he goes, until he gets caught. Right. So the summer of Sam, the summer that everybody talks about is 1977, but we're going to start back in 1975 with his first, like, official victims. There could have been ones earlier. There's just no way. he He's not talking about it anymore. He is still alive mm. in prison. So, on December 24th, 1975, and I'm not going to go into times a lot on these. I'm going to go through all of his victims, but most of these are very late at night or very early in the morning. Mm. Pretty much all of them happen with the victims being in a car. So, December 24th, 1975, he stabs two women, one Mm. badly, enough to be hospitalized, and this is his first, like, real killing. He's testing out what weapon he wants to use against people. He starts with a knife. He this Around this time, he moves to Yonkers, so he's living just outside the city. So were both of those women killed? No. Okay. One, they, one survived. One was injured badly enough to be hospitalized. Okay. Not all of these people die, Okay, but we do have a lot of really terrible injuries and attacks. So his first shooting, which is really the beginning of the forty-four caliber Son of Sam killing, is in Pelham Bay, about 1.10 in the morning. On July 29th, 1976, the couple are Donna Loria and Jody Valenti. The killer approaches these two women. They're sitting in a car. He goes into a crouch and kind of like holds his arm up Hmm. to brace it on his knee and fires three shots, one of them killing Donna Loria, injuring Jody Valenti. And because you have somebody who survives, you have somebody who can tell you something. Mm-hmm. So they, he, she talks about the crouch thing. So then they start to be like, oh, that's really common with New York Police Department training. Maybe this guy's a cop. A cop. A cop gone bad. Oh, no. So this is the first shooting. The second is months later on October 23rd, 1976 in Flushing, Queens. You're going to start noticing a lot of these are going to be in northern Queens And the Bronx, it's very easy for him to get to from Yonkers. Uh, You have Carl Denario and Rosemary Keenan, and they are parked in Rosemary's car. And this is, of course, very early in the morning. Shots ring out, and they're able to drive off. Keenan has cuts from the glass Mm. on her face. 
But Denario was shot in the head so severely that he had to have a metal plate to replace the parts of his skull that were gone. Oh, my God. So the cops, they don't piece these together as one crime yet. But the cops that are on this case in Queens, so you've got two different boroughs. So they're thinking maybe when they start to put these cases together and they're realizing they're connected, one thing they think of is, oh, well, Denario, Carl Denario at the time, had long hairs, and so far he's only attacked women, uh-huh. so they're thinking he's going after women, and guys, men. guys have long hair at the time. My dad had pretty long hair. <laughs> but at the time, like I said, it's two different boroughs, totally different cops. Mm-hmm. They're not at all seen. They're as, not talking to each other. They're not connected. Oh. Yeah. So Come that's why on. you have a lot of these killings happen. Because they're, they're just not two different precincts. That's ridiculous. And it's time before computers. Sure. So you don't have a database like that. So the next killing happens about a month later in November 27th, 1976. You have Donna DeMasi and Joanne Lamino. This one's not in a car. They are on the porch of Joanne Lamino's home in Bellarose, Queens. Mm. A man in fatigues, and I think this is when he has supposedly blonde hair, walks up asking for directions in obviously a fake high falsetto voice. Hmm. And they know this because the neighbors saw him and heard him as well. He shoots them pretty much point blank and shoots the building too. Hmm. So Damasi is shot in the neck. She survives. Lamino becomes a paraplegic. She was so Uh severely shot. Now, the first case, they realize that they're 44 calibers. And they think it's the same on this one, but the problem is the bullets are so damaged mm. that there's no way to link them mm-hmm. right now. Even if all the cops had been talking to each other. Exactly, exactly. So now we reach 1977, the big year. Mm. We have Christine Freund and John Deal, January 30th of 1977. They're sitting in John Deal's car, 1240 in the morning, and shots ring out. John Deal is injured but survives, and Christine Freund dies. So he's shooting right through the windshield? He's shooting through the windshield. Okay. Or sometimes he'll come up on the side on of the, the car side. and shoot into the passenger side. Okay. Cops finally make the connection. But the thing is, at every case, his hair is a different color, mm. which we'll talk about that a bit more so later. So any witnesses are going to report. Wait, they see different things. So sure, sure. first he does the thing where he fires like a cop, and mm-hmm. then he has different, they end up being wigs, but different colored hair, different mm. textured hair. So they, wow. the cops are thinking it's got to be more than one person. Sure, Copycat crimes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the fifth one, it's really touch and go. They do put it on Son of Sam, but it is only one woman rather than two. Up till now, it's been two women every time. Mm. This one's also at 7.30 in the afternoon instead of being really late at night. Huh. But it is in Queens, March 8th, 1977. It's right by the last killing that just happened within a block or two, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, why it kind of gets put on him as well. He Mm -hmm. also confessed to a lot of these, so. Yeah. She's walking down the street. He pretty much walks straight up to her, and she's uh, in college, I think, at the time, and Mm -hmm. she's carrying books home. Mm -hmm. So she holds these books up in front of her face, but it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. The bullet goes straight through the books, and she dies. This one's different because there are absolutely no witnesses and of all the, all the other things, it's a single, not a double murder. But they lump it in because it's the time he's doing it. It's a forty-four caliber bullet, mm-hmm. everything else. 
at this point, two days later, the public is just totally flipping out. Yeah. The press is covering it. It's amazing because press around the world is covering this. It goes as far as the Vatican, the (gasps) USSR. The New York Post has some of the best headlines. We'll try to put some pictures of some of those up. The Operation Omega Task Force starts up. And over there are over 300 cops on this. 300? Yeah, just on this task force. For one guy. Well, they don't know how many people oh, it is. True. So, our sixth attack is Alexander Asau and Valentina Suriani on April 17th, 1977. Mm-hmm. They're in Pelham Bay, mm-hmm. and they're in Suriani's car. Both are shot twice, and both died without describing their attacker. So mm-hmm. you don't get anything out of this one. But this is when the cops start really thinking there's got to be just one guy. Mm. Because they find a note. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh, maybe we'll post it. It's too long to read. We could go on for hours just reading the note. There are several notes. They're very messed up. Mm. I'm not going to read them on the air, but we'll post either a link or the actual notes. Mm. Essentially, he calls himself Mr. Monster. Mm. He says, I did it. And the press starts to call him Son of Sam. So they had been calling him the 44 caliber killer. Mm -hmm. But now they start calling him Son of Sam because of what's in the note. I see. And we'll go into a little bit about that later, why it's Son of Sam. Mm. The Daily News on May 30th, 1977, Jimmy Breslin also gets a note. And he actually says, quoted in the note, what will you have for July 29th, which is a reference to the first killing hmm. of Donna Laurie and Jody Valenti. So now everyone's like, let's Uh-oh. crack down the city. We cannot let anything happen. Mm-hmm. It's very ominous. And the lettering is really particular on the letter. Mm. So the the cops are kind of smart on some of this. They do catch him, so I will say he's smart. They did get him eventually. They go to DC Comics and ask if they recognize the lettering because they say it's so specific and so comic-oriented. So like a comic book handwriting. Kind of, yeah. Okay. So they actually huh. go to DC Comics and they're like, no. Hmm. He's actually able to publish part of the letter and Breslin asks the killer to turn himself in. He doesn't. So, before we go on to more killings. In the city at the time, of course, everyone's totally panicking. Yeah. And women in the city, this is not funny, but it kind of is. Women in the city started noticing that all the women who were killed had long, dark hair. So, thousands of women switched to short haircuts and brightly mm-hmm. colored dyes and wigs suddenly become hard hard to come by. Really? Yeah. Wow. So if you don't want to cut I mean, you have blonde hair and I have light brown hair, but yeah. if Kathleen, if you had dark hair and you didn't want to dye it, mm-hmm. you could just buy a wig and then you're safe supposedly until safe. they catch him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Alright, so June twenty sixth, nineteen seventy seven in Bayside, Queens. I'm sure you're seeing if you have a map in your head of where all these are you're seeing like a common area mm. that all of this is. Sal Lupo and Judy Placido are sitting in their car and are fired upon by the killer. Both are able to survive. He doesn't stick around to make yeah. sure people... He really just kind of fires off and runs. runs. So the eighth shooting, we have two days after the anniversary. 
So he's he's a little smart about this mm-hmm. in that the cops for the anniversary and around those days are really combing the areas sure. that he's had because he's done it in multiple times in a particular area. And he called their attention to it with his letters. I mean, he must yeah. have known. Yeah, yeah. So instead, he goes down to Bath Beach in Brooklyn. Mm. Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante. So this is actually July 31st, so two days after. They're sitting in the car when a man approaches the car and fires four shots. Stacy dies. Robert lives, but he's so badly injured, one eye is destroyed and one has limited vision. And what starts to freak people out is that Stacy actually had short, curly, blonde hair. No! So he's going outside of... No one's safe. Yeah. So this is the first real witness that we've had. Uh, Tommy Zeno is in his car three cars away with a date, and he describes the man who walks up to the car as obviously wearing a wig. Nice. So now they're like, it's got to be one guy who's mm-hmm. just wearing a wig. Several people see him speed away in what is described as a yellow VW or yellow car, compact mm-hmm. car. He actually almost gets in an accident Ugh. speeding away. So there's a lot of people who kind of see this and they piece it together later. And at the scene of the crime, right before, a witness sees a car being ticketed and a man leaving the area with a dark object. She doesn't see what it is. And then she hears the gunfire. So a few days later, she goes to the cops and she's like, a car was ticketed. So the cops start checking what cars that were yellow Mm -hmm. in the area were ticketed. It really is what brings brings the whole thing down. That's what does it. Berkowitz, at the time, had a four-door yellow Ford Galaxy. Mm -hmm. But at the time, cops kind of wonder if he's a witness and not... The uh, perpetrator? Like, you know, if guns... Fi- like, this is all going on here. Gunfires, maybe the guy was just freaked out and sped away. Yeah, yeah. And she never saw him leave the yellow car. Mm. She just saw a yellow car that got ticketed and a guy walking away from it. And then she hears of all the people talking about the yellow car speeding away, and mm-hmm. she puts two and two together. Mm-hmm. He's still living in Yonkers. So the cops go to the Yonkers police and ask them to schedule an interview with him because they think he may have seen what happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. August 9th, 1977. The Yonkers have uh, suspicions. There's like some weird local stuff going on, so they know this guy's not on the up and up. The cops, New York Police Department, as well as Yonkers, are outside of his house and they do what they shouldn't do. They go into the car because they see a rifle in the back seat. Oh, hmm. And so they hmm. open the car, they go in, they find the rifle, ammunition, maps of crime scenes. Oh. Yes. A letter to Sergeant Dowd of Omega Task Force. Oh. However, they're stressed out because they're like, we just blew this case. Yeah. So they call, they close the car. Right. <laughs> and they call to get a warrant to search the vehicle. And while they're waiting and waiting and waiting for this warrant, he leaves his apartment and he's carrying the 44 on him. Wow. So the, the cops arrest him and the first thing he says is, well, you got me. How come it took you such a long time? Oh, come on. They go into his apartment. The apartment is in total disarray with mm. satanic symbols on the walls. Mm. He has diaries that note hundreds of arsons. <gasps> Maybe over 1,400. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. He's I didn't know that was busy, part of his busy man. MO. Wow, mm-hmm. wow. 
He quickly confesses and wants to plead guilty. And the thing is, he recants later, mm. but he knew too much about each crime. Mm-hmm. Like, he confesses he's very proud of what he did. He has a lot of details. Mm-hmm. This is where the son of Sam thing comes in. He claims the neighbor's dog made him do it. <laughs> the dog demanded the blood of pretty young girls, which is why he went after women, mm-hmm. or what he thought were women with the long hair. A, a quick side note mm-hmm. about that dog. Oh, yeah? Facebook, I posted a clue. Yeah, I wondered if any nobody got it. No, it was very cryptic. It was way, way hard. Harvey was that dog. Known by some as the demon dog who haunted David Berkowitz. That puppy in the picture is his great-grandchild. Aww. Yeah. I wonder if he's possessed. I hope not. He is living in San Antonio. Harvey himself passed away in 78. He had a rough year. Wow. A lot of media attention, and he wasn't real healthy. And then, uh, flash forward... 34 years, the little puppy. Wow, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. So, Sam, Harvey's owner, Mm. is Sam Carr, is Berkowitz's neighbor. So he says that Harvey was possessed by an ancient demon, but Mm. because of supernatural forces, he couldn't actually kill the dog. So he had to kill people instead. Oh, my Lord. After this, he's allowed to talk to the press. So after he confesses, he's going to plead guilty, Mm -hmm. he talks to the press, so he writes a letter to the New York Post, who has been so sensationally covering him. Of course. On September 19th, 1977. And this is the creepy part, and this is why some people hold on to the belief there was more than one killer Mm. to this day, because he says, there are other sons out there, God (gasps) help the world. Right, that's creepy. But it's... Stopped? It stopped. After they got Once it. he's in prison, it stops. Okay. He gets 25 years to life for each murder mm. consecutively to be served at Attica Correctional Facility. In February of 1979, after time with a psychiatrist, he says that the demonic possession was a hoax mm. to lash out at the world that had rejected and hurt him. Mm. And he targeted women because of a lack of success with them. Oh, so it feels so terrible for him. Wow. So he he changes his story. He still mm-hmm. says he did it. But this changes all the time. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. converts to Christianity. Sure. Occasionally he claims that he did not act alone. Hmm. But he changes his mind all the time on who he killed. Like he says, I killed this person and this person, but I wasn't in on this one. And then he's like, wait, I killed these these guys, but not those guys. So he's totally Making shit up as he goes. That's what it sounds like. I wonder if you're listening. (laughs) The satanic cult he was in, he says, planned events, surveilled the victims, and were lookouts and drivers. So this sounds like a total paranoia thing. Where he's imagining there are all these people helping him. Yeah. But, of course, he cannot divulge any names because his family would be at risk. Uh, Right. hmm. But... The problem, I'll say again, is that he recalls details from every crime. Now... Correct ones? Like, it checks out? and he's, Oh, yeah. All right, there yeah. you go. Like, stuff that the police held back. 
There's now a Son of Sam law <laughs> that keeps criminals from profiting from the publicity of the crime, mm. and any money made off of it is given as restitution to the families and victims. It's like the, the fund for the, for right. the families. So it's all because of him, mm -hmm. because he was, you know, everybody wanted yeah. Son yeah. of Sam. Books, to movies, do a book. yeah, yeah. So wow. now we're going to go and pose the question Serial killer? Or, or mass, mass murderer. murderer. I'm going with serial killer on this one. I'm go serial killer. Yeah. A series of events. Yeah. yeah. He definitely had it all planned. I don't know if he had it all planned out, but he definitely had a way of doing things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He did his homework. He found his people. Yeah. yeah. I think we got a serial killer on our hands. We will have to decide if that is the case for our last killer, who is Julio Gonzalez. And this happened in 1990. You might, might, some of you might even remember it. I don't. His big crime was arson. He set uh, a place called the Happy Land Aww. on fire, right? Who does that? <sighs> you'll, you'll see. This was an unlicensed social club. It was at Southern Boulevard and East Tremont Avenue. This is in the Bronx. He set the whole building on fire. 87 people died. He did this because his former girlfriend worked in the club. Now, this was on March 25th, 1990. Now, remember that date. It's going to come in handy later on, March 25th. The club had been cited for numerous code violations in the past, and that's why they were an unlicensed social club. And one of the many things that they had been cited for was that they kept their fire exits locked. Oh, I do remember this one. Really? No, I've heard of this one, yeah. Wow. Because yeah. I've heard of since then, the laws regarding mm -hmm. this, and I it's only because I remember the fire doors. That yeah. I, I remember They this. kept them locked because they wanted to prevent people from coming in without paying. So there was one door to this club, in and out. Gonzalez spread gasoline on the only staircase into the club oh. and set the whole place on fire. So he was found guilty of 87 counts of arson and 87 counts of murder. He was sentenced to 174 sentences of 25 years each to be served concurrently but if you think about his sentence that's 4350 years total which is the longest sentence for any one person in the history of New York state now legally it has to be served concurrently which means all at once so it's really only 25 years to life and he's actually eligible for parole next march yeah that's funny because berkowitz has 25 to life but it's served consecutively. Mm -hmm. It's not to be served concurrently. I looked into that. I'm like, well, why is something concurrent? Why is something consecutive? This is 87 people. Yeah. This is huge. But the deal is if all of those deaths happen as a result of one action all mm. at one time. Yeah, see, these are multiple actions. He, exactly. Mul so different Sam time. was separate, different things. This was one action he did that caused the deaths of 87 people. So... Julio Gonzalez, serial, serial killer, killer or, or mass, mass murderer? murderer? I'm going with mass murderer. We've on got this a mass one. murderer on our hands. Yes, yes. And in fact, this is one of the largest mass murders in U.S. history. A couple of little factoids about fire in New York City. Some of the superlatives. The worst loss of lives from fire in the U.S. The Happy Land arson was the worst since the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Wow. Which was also on March 25th. What? I know. That was in 1911. And similar ideas where, like, there was no other way out. Locked the fire exits. Yeah. If they even had fire exits back then. I don't know if they did. 
Didn't we talk about this on a podcast? They had like seven. There were other exits. There were other exits. I didn't know if there were official fire exits. That was in 1911. And the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire killed 146. The worst fire in New York City and the worst in American, one of the worst in American history was an explosion and fire in 1904 on board an excursion ship, the General Slocum. Which we mentioned in the Hellgate episode. So that burned in the East River near Hellgate. Over a thousand people lost their lives in this tragedy. So it was his deliberate arson leading to the death of 87 people that makes this one of the largest mass murders in U.S. history. Not the largest loss of lives from fire, which was General Slocum or Triangle Shirtwaist, depending on how you want to define. So I really feel like we went up on the body count. Yes, yes, we did. We... 87 is a lot to kill. Yes. Well, we hope you, I don't know if enjoyed, but we hope you got to learn (laughs) a little bit more during this podcast about different times in New York and Mm -hmm. how crimes have been treated. That's it. It's interesting. I like doing the research for this. It's dark stuff, but we we like to learn about this. There's a reason that they made a movie out of Son of Sam. There's a reason there's a documentary about the ice and it's interesting stuff. So we hope you were interested hearing us discuss it. We may or may not use this topic in our upcoming pub quiz on august 17th at 4 p.m at cherry tree bar here right here in brooklyn mm-hmm. i say right here because it's where i am it's as right, I, it's right over there i know I as i pointed out the window. as we gesture towards the bar from my house <laughs> that is 65 fourth avenue at bergen street super close to barclays center tons of trains go there 4 p.m on sunday the 17th of august we really hope we see you there it's free to enter it's going to be a great Great time, pub quiz. Tons of prizes. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Talk to you next time, folks. Bye. Bye. For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, www.abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Wow, that is a big episode.